to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. To America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Jody Torpy, author of The Colorado Gardener's Companion and her most recent Blue Ribbon Vegetable Gardening, The Secrets to Growing the Biggest and Best Prize-Winning Produce. Good morning, Jody. Good morning, Daryl. And how did you get into gardening? Were you always a gardener? Did you have a gardening family? Well, I think I was always a gardener because some of the earliest pictures show me in the garden helping with the watering chores. And I'm not even quite two years old because I'm standing there in a diaper (laughs) holding, (laughs) holding the hose. And the hose is going full blast and the garden bed is completely flooded. But I'm very intent on what I'm doing. And I think that's how I got my start with gardening. So I've always been a longtime gardener. That's really funny because I have memories of my mother and grandmother letting me help. Uh, My grandmother had beautiful flowers. They lived on a farm in Wisconsin. Mm. And my mother, even though we were in the suburbs, she always grew a garden too. And some of my earliest memories are of um, being guided in how to hold a watering can or how not to spray my mother with (laughs) with a hose. (laughs) Bless her heart, those two ladies went through an awful lot. Um, But it did raise me as a gardener. Mm -hmm. The only time I really wasn't gardening was, um, well, of course, when I was a teenager, I wasn't too thrilled to be sent out to pull weeds and stuff like that. But even when I was in college, I had a house plant on the windowsill. Well, so did I. I always had something on the windowsill, and even uh, some of those early rental houses after graduating from college, I would always have something growing, and I can remember one time having a window box full of tomatoes sitting in the front driveway because that was the sunniest spot in that place to grow. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. We, I had we, our first rental. Um, we were on the second floor, and because it was a two-story house, there really wasn't very much sun. So I had pots all over the front steps. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and our landlord let us use a little tiny strip. It was about three feet wide and, and part of the length of the driveway. Well, we could use the whole part of it, but there wasn't much that had sun so yeah i understand you you just get this gardening thing in your blood and you got to do it well one one time um i lived in a townhouse that had just a postage stamp size patio and the sun really never hit the patio and that year i grew all of my vegetables in hanging baskets (laughs) off of the (laughs) fence so it was really like the hanging gardens with uh, tomatoes and peppers i just grew everything in those hanging baskets so it kind of proved to me that if you are industrious and you really want to grow something you will be able to find a place to grow it Yes, as my mother always said, where there's a will, there's a way. Yes, and I you know, I really said that. <laughs> huh? I think all mothers said that. <laughs> well, I guess all of a certain generation. I don't right. know if moms say that anymore, unless they had mothers like mine that that told them that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you grew everything in in hanging baskets now. 
you're in a very dry climate. You're out in Colorado. How did that work out for you? Well, we have to irrigate everything anyway. Um, Our annual rate of precipitation, I think, is around, the average is around 15 inches. Although some years we can have much more, like right now we're having a really wet spring, which is making it difficult for gardeners because we want to get out there gardening, but it's been cool, it's been wet, and it hasn't been conducive to really getting out to planting. And so some years it's wet like this early, and then we have long, hot, dry summers. Maybe we might have monsoon season, you know, in August. It just really is different every single year. So you had all your plants on, what, a drip irrigation system? Or when you first started, were you just industrious with the watering can? I am still a hose dragger, and I still water by hand. I think that that is one of the joys of gardening, is being able to get out into the vegetable bed and spending some time out there. It's quiet. It's cool in the mornings. I also think it's the best way to be able to keep track of how your garden's growing and being able to take care of weeds early or if there are problems with insects or plant diseases, you can really take action quickly when you're spending more time out in the garden. It's just as, I just value that as part of the whole process of, of gardening. I really like that aspect of it, too, though I know a lot of our listeners don't have the luxury of being able to do that. Maybe they have kids that they have to get to school, or and then they have to get to work, or for whatever reason, they just don't have the luxury of going outside, and, and I, I think that's really sad. Well, I think that there is always time to carve out of a day to be able to do that. And I, you know, speaking of us being gardeners as kids, it's so important to get the kids out there helping at an early age. Absolutely. So research even shows that children that are involved in gardening at an early age and are part of that process will always be gardeners, even if they have to take a break going to school or um, before they start their families or whatever, but eventually they will come back to planting and growing. And so if we want to have a next generation of gardeners, we need to get them started while they're little. And so instead of, you know, trying to do everything yourself, you can get the kids out there to lend you a hand, even if it's not a perfect hand. (laughs) They can still lend a hand. Yeah. I'm a big believer in getting kids out into the garden, too, because if you catch them early, if if they're infected by the gardening bug, and and you do have to let them make mistakes. If they Mm -hmm. make mistakes, well, you know, that's okay. We all make mistakes, and we as adults can make much bigger mistakes than most (laughs) kids can. Well, fortunately, when you make a mistake in the garden, it's not like life or death, (laughs) except for the plant. You know, it's not like you're a neurosurgeon or something. You know, you just uh, pull up a plant and plant another one or put another seed or do something different the next year. Absolutely. And I get get frustrated when I hear parents yelling at their kids when they're in the garden. Oh, yeah, they might be doing something stupid. They might be spraying water all over their brothers and sisters with a hose. But, you know, that's what kids do. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I think they, they need to do that. They can be disciplined at school. They can be disciplined at the dinner table. But I think they really, really need to be not so disciplined in the garden. Well, one of the gentlemen that I interviewed for my book uh, is is very active in um, in his gardening community, and he's the master gardener, and he has six kids. And row that they can plant any way they want. And so he's given them the freedom to plant as many, you know, if they want a whole row of nothing but peas, they can do that. Uh, But I think that is such an encouraging way to just get kids out there and let them learn from experience. Otherwise, they grow into, um, you know, adults or young adults, like I see in some of the classes I teach, that, that come up to me and say, I want to grow something, but I've never planted a seed. I don't know how to start. And they're afraid to put a seed in the ground. And so they, um, it, it holds them back from being able to enjoy such a wonderful hobby. I think you you make an excellent point there. I was very fortunate. My mother was a wise woman, and so was my grandmother. And my mother had brother dig up a three-by-three spot for me when I was a couple of years old. And they taught me how to plant. You know, I I got to pick out what I wanted, and what Mm -hmm. I wanted was tomatoes and beans. So they helped me plant the tomato plant and showed me how to pat, you know, bring the soil up and pat it down nicely and to water it. <laughs> you know, just like we're tucking you it into bed for the night, only you don't Aww. cover its head. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they taught me how to plant the first couple of beans and how, you know, using my fingers for spacing to get the beans, you know, three, four inches apart. I don't even remember sure. when, how much it was then. I think it was three or four, I guess it was four fingers. Um <laughs> For me, and yeah, and 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 we poke it down just until our knuckle is showing, because of course on kids' hands that's that's pretty small, and mm-hmm. then how to pat cover that over and and row down, and that was my garden. I oh, went and some marigold plants, oh, marigold sure. seeds. You know, sure. I, I just love taking those little seeds and poking them in. They were just kind of like little arrows or something like that and you stick them in the ground and after a while you get these leaves coming up and they grow the beans were particularly good because they're nice and fat and easy for a little kid to handle Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i I think i think we're on the same we're singing from the same hymnal here right right now you mentioned teaching in school so do you do it as a master gardener or are you a regular school teacher or how do you do that when I said teaching my classes, it's um, I do different presentations at uh, garden centers and for special events, and so I have a, a lot of different talks that I give about vegetable gardening. So I travel around and, and do talks like that. I also am a master gardener, and so there's some of that through that as well. And I also have a video class on Craftsy on how to grow vegetables in small spaces. And through that class, I've reached an international 
international audience of vegetable growers because I hear from people all over the world that take that online video class and they get in touch and they ask questions and it's really interesting to hear from people as far away as, um, let's see, there was somebody in Saudi Arabia and Germany and there was uh, Italy and Spain and so all over the world people are interested in growing vegetables and growing them in small spaces. That's a lot of fun. And we have, we have um, listeners in lots of different countries. Um, it's interesting when our, our station owner was telling me about the logs he's got and where people log in from. Wow. I think that's amazingly fun. And I've had some calls, because my show is, is pre-recorded, so I don't take calls. But they've had calls from all over the world, too, it seems. So I think that's great. And, you know, gardening, like music, is universal. Yes. I think it touches the same places in our hearts, in our souls, whatever you want to call it. Well, I, I totally agree that, um, in fact, I don't think I've ever met a grouchy gardener. <laughs> Once you, you start talking about gardening, and maybe it's a really simple question like, what's your favorite tomato? And then, you know, it's off to the races on a long conversation about tomatoes, tomato growing, the best varieties, and it, it is, it's an instant connection. It is an instant connection. Um, and, and I've met a couple of grouch gardeners, but mostly <laughs> but mostly they weren't really gardeners. They were had people who had gardens. They didn't actually do it. They had somebody else. We have to take a little break here, but when we come back, we'll talk about more about gardening and what is a prize-winning vegetable, and we'll be back right after this. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. This morning, I'm talking to Jody Torpy, who is the author of, well, her newest book is Blue Ribbon Vegetable Gardening, The Secrets to Growing the Biggest and Best Prize-Winning Produce. So, what is, when people think of blue ribbon vegetables, 
they often think of those huge pumpkins, you know, that they have to take cranes and <laughs> make special lifts for. And then, of course, every year there's somebody that has a big splat <laughs> and <it laughs> makes the news as long as well as the giant pumpkin. But it doesn't, you don't have to grow a giant pumpkin to have a, have a blue ribbon winner, do you? No, you don't. I, uh, I like to think of blue ribbon vegetables as any vegetable that is picture perfect and is prize worthy, whether it wins a prize at the fair or whether it's just worthy of a prize as you're setting the table and chopping things up for dinner, that um, that's a blue ribbon vegetable. It doesn't have to be giant vegetables, although giant and jumbo vegetables are a category of vegetables at a fair or um, contest. You can win a prize for just about anything that you grow in your garden. In fact, I won a uh, blue ribbon for... (laughs) for a couple of tomatoes that had grown together and formed the shape of a perfect butt. And that butt shape, that butt tomato won the prize for the best mutation in a novelty (laughs) category of the contest. So even if you don't have absolutely perfect vegetables, you can still win ribbons um, if you have a, a good sense of humor. I hope you have a picture of that that I can post oh, yeah. on our Facebook page. <laughs> there, there is, there's a picture of that I can send you, and there's also a picture of that in the book, almost a full-page picture. And I named that exhibit, How I Got a Little Behind in My Gardening. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Oh, that's that's funny. I wonder if the judges like the name as well as they did the tomato. I think so because when you order when you enter uh, like the novelty they are looking for um you know something that grabs their attention and um you know as long as it's uh not you know x-rated I think that that's okay. I know I used to love to go um well, I was forced to go to flower shows with my mother, um, and I was forced to go through the the buildings with my mother if we went to the county fair, uh, and she was very much interested in flowers. But I remember going right to the horticulture part and looking at, you know, three perfect peppers that would win a ribbon or right. um, a couple of perfect cucumbers or a setting of a fan of green beans. And I remember the first time I saw blue green beans, purplish, and I just went, whoa. (laughs) Well, I think that uh, that's the challenge for gardeners, and and I would encourage everyone to try to um, add to their gardening enjoyment by planning at the beginning of the season to grow some perfect vegetables to enter at the at the county fair or enter in the state fair. And the reason why it's a challenge is because exactly what you're talking about, it's not just entering one perfect tomato or two terrific peppers, but there are requirements for a certain number of perfectly matched vegetables that are at the peak of perfection and 
perfectly ripe on the day of the contest. And as you know, vegetables don't always cooperate <laughs> and grow on schedule like that. And sure. so it really is, it's a, it's a wonderfully fun challenge to be able to, to do that, to um, set that goal at the beginning of the season and then spend more time in the garden working on your working on the garden and trying to get those blue ribbon prize winning or prize worthy vegetables well since you mentioned vegetables not cooperating with your calendar how do you <laughs> pick how do you decide um uh, how where to, how to plant when to plant you know, in in getting ready in time for the fair well, there is a little bit of uh, a science to it, and it starts with uh, knowing when the date of the fair is or the fairs that you want to enter. And so you start with that date, and around here, some of the county fairs can be as early as the end of July, which wow. makes for a very short growing season. We already have a short growing season, but that makes it even shorter. But you start with those end date in mind, and you count how many days um, you have to grow, and you match the number of da- days to maturity for the vegetables that you're planting. So if you know you only have uh, 60 or 70 days before the fair, then you want to plant the shortest uh, number of days to maturity of the varieties that you pick. So you pick tomatoes that ri- will ripen in 60 days or 50 days, and you really study the varieties that you want to plant. And if you have a contest that maybe is like going to our state fair, which is at the beginning of September, you'll have more time. And so you can plant varieties that have a longer uh, days of harvest or days to maturity. And so you really do a lot of matching with all of the different vegetables that you pl- plan to take to them, take, take to the fair. So it can be your beans and your cucumbers and uh, tomatoes and peppers and eggplants and whatever other categories of vegetables at the fair. So count, you do a little counting to find those prime planting dates. And then It's always good to plant like a week sooner and a week later as what I call vegetable insurance so that you'll be sure that something will be ready in time for the fair. Yeah, because, you know, it's not just the days to maturity, um, though that's very important. It's also, and I don't know whether that holds in your part of the world so much since you're up north quite a bit further than we are, but the day length changes so much in you know from early spring and into fall and mm-hmm. here for example we can grow a lot of vegetables into you know november and i've even sometimes had uh, a tomato or two around christmas but when you get late in the season there are so few daylight hours that it really slows everything down you're right you're right and, and i should mention that that um, we know all, we know that all gardening is regional so what works for me here in the intermountain west is going to be a little different than what works for you in the south and so you take some of those regional uh, differences into consideration too as you're picking your varieties that you want to look for um, the, the seasonal temperatures, the uh, different kinds of climate uh, conditions, and really match those vegetables carefully. That's why choosing the best varieties is kind of another 
art. You can spend a little bit of time in the winter before you, you know, while you're thinking about your garden and really studying the catalogs and seeing what kinds of things, uh, what kinds of produce will match your conditions the best. So how do you decide what varieties um, you're going to grow? Well, when when I say choose the best varieties, I always think about some of the uh, giant vegetables. You had mentioned those a little earlier. And one of the things I did when I was writing this book as research, I went to the Alaska State Fair in Palmer, Alaska, and that's where they have a giant cabbage weighing contest. And that is where the world champion heaviest cabbage record was set a few years ago, and that cabbage weighs or weighed 138 pounds. I remember seeing pictures of some of them, and they showed pictures of the people standing on the scale, as well as the picture of their produce on the scale, and it's just mind-boggling. But they do have, you know, really, really long, long days. Well, that's, uh, and they have really rich soil, but the other part of that is they select a kind of cabbage variety that is known to grow to over 50 pounds. So it's genetically um, bred. Um, It it, it already has everything it needs to be able to grow to 50 pounds. Ordinary cabbage can't get that big. It takes a special variety. And so that's genetically predisposed to get that big. So when you're thinking about best varieties, you want to think about what are the varieties that I can grow in my garden that will be consistently perfect. And so one one way to choose is to really study the names because the names can of uh, the varieties or cultivars can give you some clues into what will work such as trophy tomatoes or prize taker leeks, first prize pumpkins, um, contender bush beans. All those names give gardeners clues that somebody had good luck with those in the past winning prizes so that they might also have a good chance at that. And then also to read up on those descriptions whenever you see words like uh, reliable performer, uh, extremely prolific, dependable, consistent, uh, huge yields, early maturing, you know, uh, phrases like that give gardeners other clues to, okay, this is going to be a really good vegetable that is going to yield a lot of consistent fruit. And so that's what, as um, a competitor, that's what you want. You want to have a lot of beautiful vegetables to be able to choose from to take to the fair. So those are some ways that you could um, read those about those varieties and also some of the traits that they have. Some things grow really well in your neck of the woods, especially when it comes to onions. You want to choose the onions that match your day length as opposed to the onions that I would plant in my garden that have a different day length. And um, then there are some that have insect and disease resistance kind of built in, and that might be something you look for, too. That's the biggest problem that we have here in the southeast. Because we have such a long season, insect pressure can really build up. Mm -hmm. And because we typically have a very wet climate, 
I mean, it's always wet compared to yours. Our, our annual rainfall is somewhere between 45 and 50 inches, <laughs> which is, you know, for something like you, it, it, it's just amazing. You, you don't even think about that um, in, in the good part of the country. But we also typically have very, very humid weather mm-hmm. and an afternoon thunder shower. We can get a lot of rain in an afternoon thunder shower, and then the plant goes into the night wet, oh, and bad. you know, and diseases develop. That's mm-hmm. part of the disease triangle that anybody that studied gardening much has probably heard about. Where you have the 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 pest, and you have the right conditions, and you have the right plant to support it, and those all come together and. Oof, you got problems. Um, this year, we're about five inches behind already in rain, so we're just kind of wondering what the rest of the summer was. Mm-hmm. El Nino, La Nina thing, I think, is flipping over, which is good because it's easier to uh, easier to irrigate than it is to try to protect your precious plants. Right. We have to take a little break right now, but when we come back, we'll talk more about gardening for the biggest, best blue ribbon winning plants. We'll be right back after this. Quick stakes, that's Q-U-I-K stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, You can rest assured, knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm talking today with Jody Torpy, who is the author of Colorado Gardener's Companion, a whole bunch of other articles, and her latest book, which is Blue Ribbon Vegetable Gardening. Now, Jody, how did you decide to grow blue ribbon vegetables? What led you into it? Well, I had been a longtime gardener, as as we talked about, and I was looking for ways to inject more fun into the 
gardening process, and that's when I thought that it would be fun to enter a fair. And so I started looking around for books on how to grow blue ribbon vegetables, and there really wasn't a single book that had all of that in it. Every fair does have what they call a show book or a premium book or a show guide that specifies the contest categories and what constitutes a blue ribbon vegetable for each of those categories. So it might say that for your beans, you need to enter 12 uh, green beans that are all exactly the same length and their stem is trimmed to the exact length. But there was no one book that said um, how to grow perfect produce. And I started doing some research and really looking for that um, that guide to that and couldn't find anything that had been written in the last 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> because there just wasn't that book around, and that's why I decided that I would get into this and experiment and um, experience what it was like to, over a season, to plan ahead and take some vegetables to the fair. And my first year, I had, I guess, beginner's luck because I got ribbons for everything that I entered in contests, every contest that I entered. And after that, I was hooked. It was just so much fun doing that and also just being part of the excitement of the fair. And I think... I would encourage other people to explore that, even if they only take a few entries to the fair, to be part of that excitement, because it's really an important part of America's agricultural history. And I don't think that a lot of gardeners or people even think about it now, but fairs were the reason why we have such a big bounty of vegetables available today and such a diverse number of vegetables that we grow or that farmers grow for us. And it all started in um, about the early 1800s. And I think we have to you have to think back to that time in our country's history. It really wasn't that long after the Revolutionary War where America was new, a new country and trying to be self-sufficient and trying to grow the economy and a couple of ways they could do that were um was through um manufacturing was one way and also through um like our livestock and through agriculture and those were just the basics of growing the economy and through contests like growing vegetables and taking to them to the fair it encouraged farmers to grow bigger crops and better crops and every year they would try for prizes and just to see and and through that is how um the the agricultural economy grew because those fairs were such an important part of our history that farmers would look forward to that every year to go and learn some new techniques, find out about new hybrids and different um, different methods of growing, different equipment for growing, and improve their agriculture so that they were improving their individual economy, but also boosting the nation's economy in the process. So the whole idea of fairs is, you know, now it's it's kind of like you go and you enjoy the corn dogs and the midway, but 
the agriculture part is the connection to our country's roots. It is. And if you look at some of the, like the old Little House on the Prairie series, mm-hmm. you know, once a year I think they went to the fair. And it was, it was really a little microcosm of how things were. I know my grandfather raised prize Holstein cattle. Yep. And he, my father and his brothers and sisters grew up exhibiting a calf every year. And then when they were older, they helped exhibit some of the larger animals. And that was that was a good way to make income too, because every you know if if you um, if one of your calves from this particular herd sire wins, then you know if it gets all the all the ribbons, then somebody that's going to buy that calf is going to probably grow it not for meat but for its progeny too. Mm-hmm. So it commanded a big pre- premium. Mm-hmm. So you got into it by that. Now I'm really surprised. And, of course, the Internet wasn't probably available like it is now. But I know that England has had a really long culture uh, in in many, many parts of, of England of, of growing and ha- exhibiting huge vegetables. I think except for our cabbage in Alaska and the giant pumpkins, the most of what I see about, you know, the, the parsnip that's seven feet long and right. things like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, but, but so when you were looking around for things to grow and do, did you, were, were people willing to share their secrets with you? Yes. Somebody that won? Yes, they were, and it's interesting that you bring up the history in um, of English uh, vegetable gardening because they do have a long history, and they... Um, competed and they still have competitions with giant leeks and it, it, it their competitions are still a very big part of what they do um, but remember that our country was really new and all of the uh, people that you know some of them were British American citizens so they are some of the first people that suggested livestock shows and as a way to boost the American economy because that's what worked so well at home. And when I was doing my research for the, my Blue Ribbon book, I did get in touch with uh, the, royal, the librarian at the Royal Horticultural Society in, in London, and um, even she couldn't recommend books that were newer than 100 years old on how to grow exhibition-worthy vegetables. So, that, so those those resources are out there, but they're all very old, and of course they're wonderful to read, but um, they needed to be updated. So, and you have updated it, so if somebody decides that they want to take their gardening to the next step, they can do that. Right. The, my book has a little bit of the history and how important vegetable gardens and vegetable competitions are. Um, and then it uh, focuses on how to grow ten of the most popular vegetables at eat at the at 
fairs. And so there are 10 chapters, and in each chapter I really go into depth about growing that particular vegetable and um, offer suggestions about um, the varieties that people have had really good luck with in the past and also include profiles and advice from other growers across the country. Uh, For the onion chapter, I talked to um, the owner of uh, Dixondale Farms in Carrizo, Texas, because they grow almost a billion onion plants a year at their farm that and sell those across the country and um, so I figured he knew a little something about growing he probably yeah so I tapped his expertise for that and oh I talked to folks all over the country and got some of their tips and ideas on growing and so there's um, it, it that was some of the fun part about the book and most people were very generous in their advice and suggestions. And I guess the only people that weren't were the giant cabbage growers in Alaska. They held their secrets pretty close to their chest um, on how on tips for growing. They didn't want to share too much. <laughs> that's interesting because that, that's so unlike most gardeners. But I understand that in England there are you know, the, the competition is so great that some of them don't like to share. Um, and people even go and spy into other people's gardens to there see what they're up to. There have been so, cases of people going and um, mutilating other competitors' crops. Oh, I know. I, that's how hardcore that can be, where, you know, they take hatchets to their giant leeks right before a contest. So people spend their nights out in their gardens protecting <laughs> their vegetables. It's very cutthroat. Oh, my. I know a gardener that would stand out all night and try to, try to protect his his corn from the raccoons well, and the go. rest of it from deer. But, <laughs> to, but to think of having to guard it from people, that that's pretty sad. So is there any real, is there a really good beginner vegetable that somebody might try? Well, I, you know, I think that people should just grow what they enjoy eating. I think mm-hmm. that um, if you that you wouldn't grow something that you wouldn't enjoy because you're going to have, I mean, if you plant beans, you're going to have a lot of beans over the course of the summer. So you want to plant something that you really enjoy eating. But I think that um, everybody wants to grow a really great tomato, and you know the pepper competition is really um, a. Uh, it's a hot competition <laughs> um, because uh, peppers are fairly easy to grow, too. And so I picked um, 10 of the, I think, the easiest vegetables that anyone can grow. And I, they're, they're vegetables that you can grow uh, no matter where you garden, even if you have just a patio garden or a balcony garden uh, or like the hanging garden I talked about earlier, that um, you can find vegetables that can fit just about any space. Now, you mentioned growing tomatoes. Of course, here in the southeast, it's a little bit more difficult, and in the northeast, too, because they occasionally have these horrible outbreaks of late blight, as we mm-hmm. occasionally do here. And in a dry and an arid climate, it's not so much of a problem, though I would guess that during when monsoon finally gets to you, that becomes a problem, or maybe not. So do you have any, any favorite tomato varieties? 
Well, I would. I do have t- uh, favorite varieties, and um, I think I, I sort of judge them by color because my flavor, my favorite black tomato is something called black crim. Oh yes. <laughs> and then I have a favorite orange tomato called a mana orange. But those are long-season tomatoes, and those would be really difficult to grow in time for those early contests that we have around here. So there are some short-season tomatoes, and that might be some way that you can get around that uh, late blight, is if you get tomatoes that, um, that you can plant and that mature earlier so that you're picking tomatoes before the plants suffer any kinds of disease. That's one strategy that we employ here, mm-hmm. <laughs> one among many. But if you're a tomato nut like I am, you're going to grow it even if you have a problem. Right. So right. we'll have to take another little break right now. But when we come back, I'd like to talk about more of your favorite tomatoes. You mentioned black creme, and that's one of mine. And I noticed in your book you have Tiger Tom, which is, boy, that's a wonderful tomato. <laughs> anyway, we'll be right back after this. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Jody Torpy, author of a lot of things and her most recent Blue Ribbon Vegetable Garden, gardening the secrets to growing the biggest and best prize-winning produce. And we were, right before the break, we were talking about favorite tomatoes, and you mentioned black creme, which is one of my favorites. Um, and do you go in for Cherokee purple, or is that too long a season for you? I have grown Cherokee purple in the past, but I, as far as flavor, I still think that black crim has that deep, smoky flavor that I just really like. Yeah, it does have that bit of smoky, salty flavor. Mm-hmm. It's, it's different. Um, what other ones do you like? Well, I have grown a little bit of uh, of everything. Every year I try uh, at least a dozen new to me tomatoes. And so this year, well, in the past I've grown um, some Julia Child, which is a lovely red tomato. And I mentioned the Amana Orange, which is a beefsteak size orange tomato that also has a nice flavor. 
I go for things that are more tart than sweet, and so mm-hmm. I really like that amount of orange. And um, last year I won a hundred dollars at a garden center wow. for the heaviest uh, tomato, and it was I took in an orange uh, amount of orange, and so it was a, a big winner for me. But I also like small tomatoes, too. I think that that's a really great way for gardeners to sort of hedge their tomato bets, is to plant different sizes of tomatoes with different maturity dates. And so I plant some smaller early tomatoes that I like. Um, There's a variety called Tiny Tim that's a really Mm -hmm. cute little plant and um, nice-sized tomatoes that have good flavor. And, of course... uh, Super sweet 100s are good. I've grown some white cherry tomatoes that were an heirloom that were awfully good, too. I tend to go more for heirlooms, but I'm very excited about the dwarf tomato project that some of the people on the uh, one of the tomato forums is have been doing, mm-hmm. working on for several years. Craig LaHulier and... Uh, uh, lady from Australia and a bunch of other volunteers have been working to get full-size, variable-color um, tomatoes with short, with, that are short and stocky oh, so that uh-huh. you can grow them in a container. And oh, some right. of those are absolutely like rosella purple. I think, I think I like rosella purple about as much as I like black crim. Oh, that's a good it's recommendation. Different. Yeah, it's different. And it's also late blight tolerant, which for us is, is really critical. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll send you the URL and I'll also post it again on our fa- show's Facebook page in case anybody misses it. And of course, the shows are all in the archives, so you can look up the shows when we, when I was talking to Craig about the Dwarf Tomato Project. Oh, okay. And it's lots of fun stuff in there. Now, when you started gardening, what was one? Of, what was the one thing that you wish you knew then that you know now? I wish that I knew how important soil was to the overall health of my garden. I think that I really took that for granted and didn't spend enough time um, looking at my soil, analyzing the soil, providing uh, plants what they need, the nutrients they need through the soil. I didn't have a very good understanding of of soil at, at all. And so I think it was from experience, um, you know, trial and error, <laughs> a lot of error, <laughs> and then finally uh, getting through a Master Gardener course and learning all about soils, that it really, that that, uh, dawned on me that that's the most important part of, of gardening is to make sure that you have that good, healthy sto- soil to start with and you can avoid a lot of problems early on by just making sure your soil's as healthy as it can be, whether you t- do a soil test like a lot of the gardeners I talk to for the book, um, do, do a soil test every year to find out what nutrients and the soil needs and pH level and what they need to, how they need to amend it to make sure that they've got the best conditions for what their garden that year. I would recommend anybody start with a soil test. Before you add anything, find out what your soil has Mm -hmm. and what it needs because 
I see when I was working for extension so often I saw that people had been throwing 10, 10, 10 on their garden for years and years and years and finally this production slows mm-hmm. and they wonder why and it's because they have an excess of phosphorus in their soils just from throwing it on or from throwing a lot of chicken litter on. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can get too much. It's funny you mentioned the master gardener class uh, and soils. I remember walking in and that was I think our first day in class or maybe our second <laughs> and the, the we all our instructors came from UGA so the professor gets up there and he writes the cation exchange <laughs> equation on on the, on the bulletin board and I just sort of slunk down into my chair and I said I think I'm in over my head <laughs> but then he went on to laugh it off you know and say that it's not really that hard <laughs> You know, because our soil test and most soil tests will tell you exactly what your soil needs. They will tell you exactly how much you need to add mm-hmm. um, and when you need to put it on there. And right. so that makes it really easy. And then, of course, the rest of it is just keep adding organic matter because we're taking things out of the soil mm-hmm. and we need to put it back. And whether that's compost, which is my favorite, or chopped leaves, if that's what you've got, you know, use it as a mulch and they break down and, and add all those wonderful nutrients. Um, you know, you can even go so far as I did when we moved here and, and go down into downtown Atlanta after the everybody's yard man had gone through and raked up all the leaves and I, they had them in these nice little sacks and I'd snatch them and I would bring them home. <laughs> And I'd get grass clippings from my dad's neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whatever organic matter you have plentiful there. And, and what is that in Colorado? You're very dry. Well, so you don't have a lot of production. Or do you use, you know, spent hay or what do you use? Well, um, it, I think it's the same for gardeners everywhere, whether you have um, a thick clay-like soil or whether you have a sandy soil. Uh, compost is the best cure for both mm-hmm. um, so we do a lot of composting and um, you know all of the thing, all of those things that you mentioned those are things that we use around here too as well as well aged manures and dig those in and um, so it's uh, as far as soil amendments I think that's pretty pretty consistent across the board Use whatever is plentiful. Right. In our area, we also we have to to have to worry about persistent herbicides, because a lot of the hay that we have has been treated with with persistent herbicides, and it's it's very dicey. Sometimes you put that stuff on, and you don't have a garden for years and years after that. Oh yeah, that could be bad. But you're still in you're in the territory where alfalfa hay is more prevalent, isn't it? Aren't you? Well, maybe, but that's not anything that I would recommend for a garden because um, of the weed seeds or seeds from the hay getting into the garden. I'd rather have a few weeds than not have a garden. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's so many other things that you can use, you know, that that you already mentioned. Uh, Chopped up leaves, that's a really great amendment that you can dig into the soil at the end of the season and let it just decompose over the winter and then you yeah. have a nice nice 
soil to start with in the spring. Let Mother Nature do her job. You don't have right. to get your knickers in a knot and follow <laughs> all the books about a layer of green and a layer of brown right. and all that kind of stuff. Just throw it together, turn it over once in a while if you've got, uh, if you're so inclined. Keep it moist if you're in a dry climate. And, uh, and and let my nature do it. That's right. Or just do it, you know, just compost or mulch between the, uh, just mulch between the rows, and it will break down, and the plants can use that, too. Mm-hmm. We are, golly, we've only got about four minutes left, but I want people to know where they can find you, what's your website, and... I assume that your book is available not just on Amazon, but any place where that's got a good bookstore. And they can order it from you. It's story publishing, right? Right. Okay, so where else can people find you? Well, I'm, uh, my website is called westerngardeners.com, and so there are all kinds of articles on my website about growing. There's uh, a little bit of everything and some information about my book. But I also wanted to uh, let your listeners know that every year I sponsor a weird veggie and funny fruit contest on my website. Oh, how fun through the month of August, and so um, I'm encouraging people to, like, if you uh, find something odd-looking in your garden and you think it looks like a face or it's a tomato with a nose or an eggplant with ears, to take a picture and submit it to uh, submit it to the contest, and um, so that's always a lot of fun. I have a Facebook page that's weirdveggiefunnyfruit.com. And or they can get through to me through my website as well. Okay. And my craftsy class is called Vegetable Gardening Innovative Small Space Solutions. And so that's at the craftsy.com website. Okay. And, and is that list, listed under your name, Jody Torby, or is it? it um, it's probably under my name or under the Vegetable Gardening classes. Okay. Well, that gives people several places. Now, you mentioned that you do some talks. Is that all local, or do you get out there? I am all over the place. Um, This weekend, um, coming up, I'm going to be in Rhinebeck, New York, at the Country Living Fairs. And then I'll be at some of the Mother Earth News Fairs this year as well. Those, for anybody that has not ever been, you really need to go to a Mother Earth News Fair. There is so much information and so many excited people there. Right. And um, I'm, I'm so happy that vegetable gardening is making a big comeback and that so many people are interested in growing their own gardens and growing their own food. And while they're at it, I'm hoping that they're going to try to grow some really beautiful vegetables so that they can take them to the fair, win some prizes, win a little prize money, and just connect to our country's rich agricultural history. That is a really cool thing to do. I just, you know, in most places, a lot of the a lot of the country fairs and state fairs have, as you mentioned, they've turned into a place for rides and corn dogs. <laughs> but if you go looking, there's almost always a series of buildings, and that's where the good stuff takes place. That's right. <laughs> I hope everybody will take a chance to do that, find out where the fairs are. And do you have a list on your website of, of where you're speaking? Or, Well, I think that uh, on the story 
S-O-R-E-Y.com website. I think that they have a list of, um, under my book, I think there's a list of all of my upcoming events. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Jody. I hope people get your book and take a look at it and, and get prepared to have a whole lot extra fun. Take it up a notch. Well, and no, that's all the time you. we have for this week, but we'll be back with more America's Homegrown Veggie Show next week. I hope you'll join us. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.